I was 70 in the world at the time. I was already top 100, but I really wanted to go to school. And I remember calling my parents and they said, okay, what's your decision? And I said, I'm going to go to school. I'm not playing it anymore. Um, and then they said, no, you can't. Like you have to keep playing. So then I embarked on the professional tennis journey. Welcome to the My Cancer podcast, where we interview athletes, adventurers, and entrepreneurs and uncover the challenges, insights, and developments behind their life-changing journeys. On this episode, how Vanya King managed the ups and downs of a complex and all-consuming relationship with tennis to becoming a Grand Slam champion, and how she's turned her experiences into a force for good with her foundation, Serving Up Hope. Vanya, thank you so much for, for being on, on the Mike Hanscher podcast. It's really amazing for me to have you here because as a, as a fellow tennis player, I really, I, I admire what you've done in your career, but also it's, there's maybe some shared experiences between yourself and I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And one day we'll meet in person. Yeah, that still has to happen. It will, <laughs> it will definitely happen. It will definitely happen. I, as I've done with previous guests, I'd really like to start with the beginning and where you started. From what I've, what I've read a little bit about your background, your parents moved in, I think it was in the eighties from Taiwan to the U S is that correct? Yep. Okay. And did they move to that? Was it the East coast they moved to of the States? I uh, know the West coast. West coast. So okay. my parents, they flew into LA. I think it was serendipitous. I think that just happened to be the flight that they picked. It was either New York or LA. They happened to get on the LA flight. And they ended up in Santa Monica, which was very different back in the early 80s. They had to leave my brother. So they had my brother. My mom was 21 and my dad was 23. And they just had my brother, but couldn't afford to bring him over. So for about two years, they didn't see my brother for the first two years of his life. So I know it was really tough on them. They ended up taking kind of their life savings. My mom's a kind of wedding gift was a small piece of property that they sold. So they took, you know, their life savings, they sold that property, went to the States, worked various odd jobs, didn't speak English, and then ended up purchasing a fish and chips restaurant and actually from a, a Scottish couple. And the fish and chips restaurant, unfortunately, was bankrupt. And that's why they sold it at a very low price to my parents, who then turned it around and got into the fish and chips business and yeah, I was in the restaurant business for 25 years. Oh, amazing. And were your parents quite, obviously they moved out there to the States for the time for the best for you and, and your family. So were they quite strict about school and studying and, and getting good grades? My mom was for sure. Mm. So I was required to get straight A's. That's the U S system. We grade that way. And if I didn't, I would be punished. And my dad was not so much focused on academics. He, ironically, I don't know if you've seen the King Richard movie, but as you probably saw there, Richard had a manifesto prior to his kids being born of how successful they would be. And actually, ironically, my dad had, he didn't have a manifesto, but he had a dream prior to having kids and a family that his kids would succeed in sport. So he was really focused on the tennis side and how kind of long-term the family could become successful, how his kids could become successful. Uh, so he was more on that track. Wow. And uh, was it your parents got you into tennis or how did that happen? So I'm the youngest of four and my brother is eight years older than me. He 
was naughty in school. And this was around the time my dad also wanted him to start playing sport. He was also naughty. And his teacher told my parents that he needed to have an outlet for his energy. So my parents let him pick a sport and he picked tennis. And then my sisters and I just followed him. In the U.S., tennis is only from high school that you can get on the tennis right. team, but like no one is there to build those tennis skills. So my brother, who was nine at the time, which is late to start tennis if you want to be professional. My dad just took him out to the court, batted balls around. I think he may have taken him to a few lessons around. Luckily, we were in Southern California where there are so many great former champions, great tennis coaches there. So there was a wealth of information there. And then my dad became my brother's coach and then he became my sister and I's coach. Who do you look up to um, in maybe in the sport when you were growing up as a sort of an idol to model yourself after? I looked up to Pete Sampras, but unfortunately couldn't model my game after his, although, although it was the dream. If only I could be six inches taller and serve a volley and had a good serve actually, because the service, sadly the worst part of my game. Uh, so we had the opposite game, Pete and I, but I loved watching him growing up. He was so calm and collected. Obviously he's from SoCal. He had a rivalry with uh, Andre Agassi, who I wasn't really SoCal. He was from Vegas. I used to play at the Jack Kramer Club when I was a kid. Once in a while, I took lessons there. That's where Pete also grew up. Had a couple of the same coaches that he did. And he actually used to train with my brother. So Pete would invite him to go out to his house, which had a tennis court. And so I just thought it was so cool. He was like my brother's idol, my idol. And obviously I looked up to my brother as well. Wow. Wow. And when did that, when did you start to think, oh, actually, I really want to take this seriously? When did it go from being maybe something that was maybe just a bit of uh, sort of extracurricular to something that really became your passion? I don't think I ever had a choice in that because my dad, from when I was very young, when, when I was very young, decided, I, I always remember him saying, this one's going to be the champion. She's going to become number one in the world. And then we internalize what our parents say. Although I don't know if I obviously as a kid couldn't comprehend what is professional, what is a number one in the world, what does that mean? But I would parrot what he said. So I didn't really have a choice. I think he decided for me that tennis was going to be my path, um, which caused friction between him and I and also friction in myself because I didn't really have that choice. But ultimately it turned out to be a good thing. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I always feel a bit different there in the sense that uh, although my parents got, got me in tennis from a young age and, and they showed me the sport, I was never, they really forced me to, to be doing it seriously. And they always see, I mean, they supported me in tennis, but they didn't really ever force me to do it. And sometimes I hear from the opposite end of the spectrum where other players have been, you very much had a huge input from their family and their, and their parents and, and uh, I tend to think actually that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, there are some, you know, challenges associated with that, but it's that hearing that you're going to be good, hearing that you've got that support and hearing that, per that, that there behind you is also can be really powerful when you're young, because otherwise you do feel a little bit, it is a, you know, a sport when you're on your own and you're on their own, especially on the court. I think that's, it's a really interesting point there. Cause I think actually it's all, it, it can be difficult, obviously having that pressure from a young age, but it can also be, give you that encouragement. You know? well, it was definitely motivating because I 
have a choice. And also I was motivated by, unfortunately, fear. And fear is a very powerful short-term motivator. And yeah, I think in an ideal world, a parent would be perfectly balanced and find that right threshold where they can be incredibly supportive and warm. And then when they need to, they can back off. But that's not how most people function. And that it's very difficult to mix the personal and the business side, because once you get into tennis, then it becomes a business. You have to be professional. It's not just about what the child wants, pay the pathway to a career. And I think, well, in any case of mixing personal business, it's always very challenging. So I agree with you. There's value in having a pair of push the player. And especially because you have to start so early and a lot of times kids don't know what they want. They don't feel like working hard over a long period of time because they have to be an adult and consistently be professional like an adult. And that's really hard for a child. So yeah, in a ideal world, it would have been a nice balance. And I don't think that I would have, I don't know. I don't think that I would have played professionally if my dad hadn't pushed me. I have no idea. I have no idea, but I don't think so because he was such an integral part of my upbringing with tennis. He was constantly there, constantly putting pressure. But at the same time, I don't think in terms of life that my life wouldn't have been, I would have had a different path perhaps, but I don't think that I would have been um, more or less happy than if I, because I had to do a lot of work to overcome like trauma that I faced as a kid, as I think we all in our own ways face trauma and unbeknownst to our parents who are trying to do the best for us. But yeah, now I look back, I, I don't think I've ever had any regrets in my life. I can't say if anything would have been better or worse, but I, I just don't think that if I had a different path, I would have been okay with that path. But I obviously am very happy with the path that I took now with all the work that I went through. Yeah. And obviously as a junior player, you start, you started, start, must've started to travel quite a bit at a young age for even around the States, even there's a lot of traveling just to play tournaments domestically. But then of course, once you start to get into international junior events, you're, you're traveling even more. So how did you manage that? Obviously as studying and everything at the same time for, with me, I was, I remember all my friends couldn't believe that I was having to study distance and basically be homeschooled on the road, but try and teach myself all the time. And stuff like that. But did you do that as well? How did you balance those? So I attended public school until I finished ninth grade. So I had three more years of high school left. Uh, and I started doing my studies at home, which at the time I remember I was, it wasn't online. It was mailing books and tests. Right. So I would receive books and tests by mail and then I would mail them back. Yes. That's how old I am. And uh, to be honest, I didn't learn anything. (laughs) Luckily, I was in a accelerated program already. So I would say I was already doing, I think, Algebra 2. But in high school, once I went, once I started homeschooling, it was very difficult for me to teach myself and to my parents. Because then I ended up doing my university and my, my undergrad and my master's online. And I, even when I was going to school, my parents were very hands-off. They were like, you could, you just have to figure it out and you have to get good grades. And so teaching myself trig and calculus was impossible. So I remember just dropping them, but luckily I had already taken algebra two. So I'd already fulfilled the math requirement. And yeah, I, looking back, I didn't really learn much. So I'm not a huge supporter of homeschooling if possible. I think nowadays 
it's easier with online format because the teacher can be engaged online, but having to, like we did with books and literally opening it up and trying to figure it out by ourselves, that was really challenging. Yeah, that's, that's so funny because I found the exact same experience. I, I was in public school till ninth grade and then I did ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th distance. And those first two years were entirely textbook and, and pen and paper, pencil and paper. And I remember sending off packets of, of work, like so thick, several inches. Yeah. Thick. Yeah. And, <laughs> and luckily I, maybe I was just on the cusp where things starting to go online. So luckily like 11th, 12th grade was a lot more online. I just remember lugging around these textbooks for tournaments. Like I remember, you know, having to get two suitcases to go to a tournament because on a plane, because half of the other one was full with textbooks. It was just. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I was, you know, trying to fit as many sheets of paper in a manila envelope to yeah. send over to try to cut costs so you don't get to another envelope because it, it was ex expensive to send over. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think education is incredibly important. Most players don't make it or don't. I would say the term that most pros or the threshold that most pros use as making it is being able to support yourself financially. And that's usually only if you're at least top 200. And most players don't get there. Even if you work your whole life, most players don't get there. Education is incredibly important. Luckily, yeah, luckily my parents did emphasize the academic part of it. And then when I was playing, so I actually, re I really wanted to go to university physically. So I was, I was accepted and enrolled into Stanford. I really wanted to go to Stanford. Um, but by the time that I was supposed to attend in the fall. I was already top 100 and had to make a decision or made a, a deadline for myself by Wimbledon. That was going to be the time where I made that decision. And I was 70 in the world at the time. And I remember calling my parents and they said, okay, what's your decision? And I said, I'm going to go to school. I'm not playing it anymore. Um, and then they said, no, you can't. Like you have to keep playing. And so they bullied me into playing, which... On paper made sense because I was already there. I was already top hundred, but I really wanted to go to school. Tennis was hard. Like I said, my dad coaching me and all my friends were in school. I just wanted a normal life at the time and that didn't happen. So then I embarked on the professional tennis journey or a long-term professional tennis journey after that. So if you don't mind me asking, what year was that? Was that 2005, 2006? Was that before that? So I turned pro, I think in 2006. So I should have okay. gone to school in 2006. Yeah. Okay. And your dad was still your primary coach at that point? No, I stopped working with him the year before. And then at that time I was working. Yeah, I, I no, sorry. I stopped working with him that same year, 2006, because I stopped working with him at French Open. And then I went to Wimbledon by myself and I was assisted by a USTA coach, an Aussie guy named Ray Ruffles, who ended up becoming my coach for a year, the following year, because I really enjoyed working with him. He coached the Woodies. He himself was, I think, top 30, coached a lot of great Aussie players, uh, a, lot, a lot of great players in general. He also worked for Tennis Australia for a long time. And then he worked for the USTA for a long time. And yeah, 2006, I stopped working with my dad at French. And then I worked with Ray for about a year and a half. And then I didn't have a coach for about a year, which was a struggle because I, now I had my sophomore slump, which is pretty normal. You, nobody knows who you are. You're just rising up the ranks. And then the following year, you have to defend points and people have expectations. They know how you play. And, and also I didn't have my dad 
pushing me anymore, which was good for my life, but it wasn't good for my tennis because I didn't know what life, I didn't know what tennis was without having that constant blistering pressure and fear that someone's going to be upset at you if you don't win or you don't play. And so it was hard for me to find my own motivation. So I did struggle for a year and then I ended up reconnecting with a coach that I had taken lessons from. So one of the good things about my dad is that he invested in high quality coaching. So he had me take lessons from anybody that was a great coach in the area or wherever we were traveling. I connected with what became my coach throughout my career, Tariq Benavilas. He coached Andy Roddick from juniors to number two in the world. And actually, prior to asking Andy to work with him, he asked my brother to work with him at Kalamazoo. Because my brother was the best junior in the States when he was 17 and 18. And Tariq was at the Boys 18's Hardcourt Nationals, which is held in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And first reached out to my brother, but my brother had a coach already. And then went to Andy and started working with Andy's and then catapulted Andy's career. So my dad knew that he was a great coach. Um, slipped from my brother's grasp. And then, yeah, so then when I was 19, was struggling, trying to figure out where to go, what to do. I saw that Tariq had just started an academy in Florida. And so I reached out to him on Facebook and just said, hey, Tariq, you remember me? And I was 14, 15. He said, yeah, of course. And I said, I'm looking for a place to train. I had never traveled really without my family. I'd never really spent a lot of time outside of California where I'm from. And so that was the first time I made a huge leap just to, I flew to Florida, started training there, and then actually started training there and stayed training there for the rest of my career because I kept working with him. Okay. That's in terms of, because I think it's really interesting how there's a lot of players who will end up sticking with one coach throughout their career or they, or it's their, like a family member, dad, mom. And then you get the other end of the spectrum where you see some players changing every year. And of course you've, you had that really, you know, that big coaching figure with your dad and then you changed and then you swapped again. And do you think that's part of reaching different stages in your career and needing different things? And do you think that, is it a bit of like, you're always searching for that one person, couldn't quite find them until you found the right person? Or is it more, no, I needed that person back when I was at this stage and then I needed somebody else because I was seeing things differently in a different uh, part of my career from then on. I mean, how, how did, how were those roles you think those coaches play in that sense? So the coach player dynamic is it's a relationship. So there's a lot of facets to the relationship. For example, just coaching quality. Is the coach good enough to take you to where you need to go? Do they believe in you? So the kind of emotional connection, do they actually believe in you because everyone else out there is working their ass off, has someone, has a team that fully believes in them hundred percent. So if someone doesn't fully believe in you, at least for me, that was really hard to, to work with someone that wasn't mentally and emotionally supportive. The finances have something to do with it. And also the dynamic, for example, I loved working with Ray. So I would say like the three most impactful coaches, obviously was one, my dad, Ray, who I worked with for, officially we worked for about a year and a half together, but I had taken lessons with him before. But even that year and a half was so incredibly impactful for me. He laid the foundation of um, an all-court game for me. He connected me um, to, for example, Renee Stubbs. So took my doubles game to another level. 
took my singles game to another level. I got to top 50 for the first time with him. My only title with him, my only singles title with him. But we ended up splitting up because he was with the Federation and then they chose to end that arrangement. And then with Tariq, I worked with him almost continuously for then the next 14, no, probably 12 years, although I was injured a lot towards the end of my career. And we did have a gap about a year where I did work with somebody else. And so I was lucky that I felt the quality of coaching for the most part, for example, with Ray and Tariq was very high. I was, I didn't feel like I needed to go somewhere else to find a better coach, like a coach that could take me further. I felt that my limitations, so I got to top 50 a couple of times. I got to a point in my career, especially when I hit 23, 24, I was more emotionally mature that I felt anytime I went on on the court, I could beat anybody. The challenge for me was consistency throughout the year. So when, as you're building your ranking, getting to 50 means that you have to do well enough at maybe eight tournaments. So if you're top 100, you have to be do well at three tournaments. But to get to 30, 10, you have to do well at all the tournaments or consistently well and then peak at a few of them. So for me, consistency was an issue. And that ultimately looking back was an issue with my, with facing the trauma that I had from childhood. Cause like I said, uh, fear is a good short-term motivator, but when tennis became my career and then I started facing situations long-term that I needed to be able to perform and be motivated long-term, I wasn't able to, because I still had the trauma from the past. So I don't know, like I've done a lot of work on that kind of as I got older, but I don't know if I would have ever fully addressed that in in a way that would have reflected in my tennis, if that makes sense. Because a lot of this stuff is intrinsic and it is a, an emotional reaction that takes a, a lot of time to work forward in. But yeah, so going back to the coaching thing, there are players that switch coaches a lot. Like I said, there's different reasons for it. Some players are fickle and they don't, like listening to a coach. So, which never made sense to me because I'm paying a coach. So I'd want to get something out of it. I could just pay myself if I want to coach. I want myself to coach myself. And then, like I said, there's a lot of different facets to it. And, and players themselves are growing. We're all quite young when we start. We're all trying to make the best decisions that we can with the experience and knowledge and capacity that we have at the time. And the decisions that we made as at that time may not be the decisions that we make at this time as for older. Yeah, absolutely. And this might be a bit of a delicate question, but where even though your dad wasn't necessarily coaching you, did you still feel that pressure maybe when it came to sort of results and his maybe expectations of you, even if he wasn't necessarily there, maybe having to speak, having to relay, relay that over to him at some point or him finding out at some point or whatever. Did you still find that pressure was still there sometimes? For sure. It wasn't, it wasn't present in the fact that actually for a while, he and I didn't have really much communication at all. So it was never, I never thought about him in a very concrete sense of, oh, what would he think at this moment? Maybe just when we split, but then after that, I was off doing my own thing. Where his voice came in is, and like I said, I studied actually psychology to try to, it was to help me understand what I've gone through, what the way that I behave and why I process things the way I do and why other people do. And I've also gone through therapy to 
assist my mental health as well. And so what I've realized and what I've learned is that as we all, as children, we internalize our parents' rules and instruction and also, you know, learn. And what we might think is our, our own words are actually our parents' words or how the environment influenced us to be. So I definitely internalized this perfectionist attitude that I didn't feel like I was good enough. My dad was very critical. And so I became critical. So it's something that I continuously work on just in general in my life to try not to be hypercritical. Uh, and then when things don't go my way, I usually have a quick emotional response because it upsets me that things aren't going my way. I'm, I'm not successful. I'm not doing things in the right way. In that regard, yeah, all of the kind of teachings that my dad inadvertently imposed upon me had then become my own voice. And so that was the voice inside my head, criticizing myself, putting a lot of pressure on myself. And I mean, the challenge is that in sport, it's not a time of peace. So it's not a time of thoughtfulness and reflection and um, balance. It's a time of war. And in war, emotions come out first and instinct emotions come out first. And so the unconscious part of the brain then reverts back to whatever we've learned as children. How do we, how did we survive? How did we cope? And those survival coping mechanisms didn't suit me as an adult. So if that makes sense, those responses that worked as a kid, the fear of, okay, I have to win. But at the time I was a junior, just put the ball in the court was enough. But as a professional player, no, I have to step up to the occasion. I have to be aggressive. I have to be but relaxed. You know, I have to be focused. And because of all the issues of the past and yeah, the way that my dad's, the parenting that was still in my head that had become my own parenting that was still there. Now, I think it's also a common characteristic of tennis players where because the sport that isn't very, it doesn't reward waiting around to try and analyze what you're doing wrong. You've got to act in the moment. You've got to be quite self-critical in the moment because you've got to analyze something within 20 seconds to the next point and work out how to turn it around. And, and if you wait too long to do that, the set's gone or three games are gone. So I feel like that's a common characteristic as well with tennis players where they tend to just be quite overly self-critical because they're used to doing that on a regular basis to try and, or to win really. But yeah, yeah, it's hard to find the balance because you constantly need to be self-critical to improve because everyone else is trying to improve. Being stagnant means failing and going backwards, but then it also is very emotionally and psychologically taxing because if you're constantly telling yourself, you need to do this better, you need to do this better, but don't have a, a really good sense of your own self-worth, which it gets, since it's so niche and so specialized and where tennis players are like forced into this bubble, it's very hard to, to maintain that balance and the recognition of your own self-worth. And there's a lot of insecurity involved and kind of psychological dysfunction involved. So it's not an easy sport to do. I look back now that I'm retired and I think that I could have done things better if I had known, if I had the tools to do them better, but the, just the the lifestyle itself is not conducive to health, healthy psychological functioning because yeah, you're literally traveling constantly. You're always alone. The only people that kind of understand what you're doing and can commiserate is 
your rivals. So it's also hard to open up and be vulnerable to them. And you have to sacrifice your body, your money, your relationships, your family. Like you have to sacrifice everything to do it. And don't get me wrong. It's definitely worth it. There was, when I was playing, it was worth it. And then towards the end of my career, also exacerbated by injuries, but got to the point where I realized it wasn't worth it anymore, but it's worth it when you're in it, but there's a lot of sacrifices to be made. Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, you're talking about injuries. I think in 2015 was your biggest injury, wasn't it? When you were out for quite a while. So 2015, I was out for about a year, Okay, uh, but I didn't have surgery. I had a herniated disc in my, a couple herniated discs in my neck. And then 2017, I had ankle surgery and that took me out for a year. And that actually took me into retirement. Yeah. Took me out and then took me all the way out. Coming back from, I, I think whenever you see players come back from injury, it's, it, it always, it just is an amazing feat, isn't it? It's just so uh, mentally above all, but obviously physically. Is there any, how did you deal with that? And trying to come back from an injury, trying to get back to where you were, obviously there's the doubt of whether you will get back to where you are, but you still got to keep pushing. How do you deal with that? And, and, and was, would you say that's the most difficult part of it, of your career? Um, yeah, I, yeah, probably. So prior to my ankle surgery, I remember when I first went to Florida and I worked with Tariq and I was not in a good place mentally. My game was in shambles. I had won maybe five matches the whole year. And he said to me, you need to decide if you want to commit to tennis or not. Like I was half in and half out, which obviously doesn't work. And I said to him, okay, I don't know. And I was really struggling. And he said to me, but I promise you, if you put in the work, the results will come. And I really, so I struggled a lot with self-belief. And I, again, in part, because my dad was very critical on me. So he, he there was a juxtaposition of, yeah, my daughter's going to be really great. But then on a day-to-day basis, constantly criticizing me. So I did internalize the fact that maybe I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't achieve the things that he wanted me to achieve. And when Tariq said to me, I promise you, if the, if you put in the work, the results will come. And I said, how long? I was like, I need to know how, need to know for sure that this is going to be the right path. And he said, okay, I promise you that within six months, you'll see results. And I actually saw results within two. But those words, if you put in the work, the results will, will come. I totally believed that. Like I had already, by the way, been top 100. So I knew the level that it needed, that I needed to be to get there. And, and obviously you have to put in the right work, but I knew that if I put in the work, the results will come. Like I would be at that certain level. The challenge was when I had my ankle surgery. So prior I had my, my back, my neck issues, but I didn't have surgery. And so I actually just started managing them. and was able to deal with that. But after my surgery, my ankle, I had a lot of issues with my ankle after that. I lost a lot of mobility. I, the, I had some nerve damage, so couldn't really, didn't have the proprioception with my foot to my brain. Because of the lack of mobility, couldn't bend in the way that I needed to because the ankle was limited. So then everything else was limited. Um, so I just didn't understand my body anymore. I wasn't able to do the things physically that I was able to do before. So that was really challenging because now putting in the work wasn't getting the results because I couldn't put in 
the the work that I needed to do. Like I, I put in the effort that I needed to do, but I couldn't put in the exact work that I needed to do physically. So that was really challenging because, and I think nobody ends their career the way that they want to. There's no perfect way to end a career because tennis, again, is so all-consuming since you're a wee child. And how do you you disassociate yourself from that. There's no perfect way, but not having the choice, having the injury take me out of my career was, was very difficult to deal with. There was, gosh, it took me a year to even be able to speak the words that, oh yeah, maybe I won't even be able to play anymore. Maybe I have to contemplate retirement. Retirement, just saying retirement, it took me two years to be able to even say the word retirement. But I think everyone will be ready when they're ready, even though my body was ready. My brain wasn't ready. And so I needed more time to figure it out. And and then when I got to that point, then I was able to slowly get to the point where I could admit it and then process it and then look towards the future. Yeah. And of course, going into retirement, I think it was about this time last year. Yeah. Officially, I retired last year in April. April. Yeah. So I, 2017, had my injury, had my surgery, was off 2017. I played and started playing 2018. And realized, okay, so I I started playing singles at French Open, started with doubles, started playing singles at French Open. My ankle was not well at all. Played the US Open and actually won a round, but because I was compensating so much, my back spasmed. So I realized, oh, I can't even play one good match, much less come back and play multiple matches. That was 2018. So then 2019, I stopped again to go get more opinions from doctors. Um, ended up finding out that I have a torn ligament and then two lax ligaments within my ankles. So needed another surgery, decided not to go through that. Had a stem cell injection, which helped with pain and inflammation, but didn't help with mobility. And actually, um, I ended up getting surgically induced arthritis from my surgery. So I have arthritis in my ankle now. And so stopped because of the stem cell injection to try to let things heal and fingers crossed to try to come back again. Went to the US Open. So I played the week before US Open, just doubles with the intention of trying to come back to singles. Realized doubles was already putting my ankle at the limit. So I played the US Open and actually... We got to the semis, but I was waking up with pain. I was limping and just for doubles and singles is 10 times more physical than doubles. And so I think mentally I realized at the US Open that that was it. Like I needed to be done. I didn't want to just play doubles for me. Going out on court, there was joy in playing everything. That's how I learned how to play. It was very hard for me to make that business decision to just play doubles. Couldn't do that. And so I pretty much was mentally done by the end of 2018 and then COVID postponed things and yeah. Yeah. And, and of course gave you a bit more time to think about it and, and process it all. Yes, it did. I then at the end of 2019 made the decision that I was going to retire after uh, Charleston. So I was playing Indian Wells, Miami, Charleston of 2020 and I didn't play Australia. So I knew I wanted to retire. Like I was just playing those three events. They were, um, meaningful to me because I grew up in, you know, SoCal. So Indian Wells is my home tournament. Moved to Florida. Miami was my second home tournament. And then Charleston, I have great friends there. I love Charleston. So I knew that these events would be 
very meaningful, meaningful to me no matter what happened. And then went to Indian Wells and then COVID happened. Basically just postponed my retirement, but I didn't play anything until the following year, those weeks. And about, about having you on the show, obviously that not with most athletes, this would end here, but it's not, you've, you're really involved with serving up hope which a nonprofit that you started, I think, toward, I think you started it towards the end of your career with, with another player. And, and obviously you're doing that full time now. For those who don't know anything about Serving Up Hope, can you tell us a bit of how it started, what you've done today and the mission behind it all? Yeah, so I got involved in the nonprofit space around 20 years old, but more in volunteer positions. Obviously playing tennis, we had a very limited amount of time and energy, but I've always felt fulfilled in my life when I did give back. So I knew that it's a space that I really enjoy working in. And so I had done a couple of different things. My injuries were a blessing in disguise that it gave me an opportunity to delve a bit more into that space. I ended up doing a master's in nonprofit management. And then around 2019 was when Serving Up Hope launched. We did our first pilot program in Uganda to backtrack. The mission of Serving Up Hope is to provide sustainable tennis programs for underserved children and to work with communities and maintaining and growing those programs. It was very important for me to have both of those components because it's not just about me coming in and saying, this is what you need from my point of view, that, that I'm better than you, that I know what you guys need, but to make sure that I work with the communities uh, because they know what they need. But maybe I might have a vision for tennis and maybe some resources that I can assist with, but making sure that we work hand in hand together. So our, our first pilot program was launched in Uganda. I got connected to Uganda through legal aid NGO. I also love, Af I love the continent of Africa. I've done a lot of traveling through Sub-Saharan Africa because I love wildlife and it's the best place to be for wildlife. And so I got connected with a legal aid NGO in Uganda that their mission is to provide legal aid and training to anybody, regardless of you know, socioeconomic status, which unfortunately Uganda is for a somewhat stable government is one of the poorest countries in Africa and Africa is the poorest continent in the world. So we did a pilot program in 2019 where we did half legal aid training and half tennis, a tennis training. And that gave me an opportunity to see if I felt confident that one identifying need if I felt like I could make a difference, how I could make a difference. It also showed me the importance of education and play. So for Ugandans that don't have access, that are on the lower socioeconomic level, just trying to cover basic needs of food, water, shelter is difficult. And for me, I would say a step up above that, which are still basic needs, are is education and play. And so those were the components that we're working with now. So our main program is in Uganda, in Kampala. We work in a slum community there with about 120 children. And we have our community program, a community tennis program and a high performance program. Our high performance has about 55 kids. We also have a STEM program that's held twice a week. We have a tuition assistance program where we're assisting 14 children with school fees, which are approximately, I'd say, 50 to 70 pounds a term. And, but the parents of the kids that we're working with, they make, let's say approximately 35 pounds a month and they have to feed on average eight people in the family, much less, not even counting school fees, assisting them. But we also have a meal supplement program twice a week. It, it's definitely been 
a steep learning curve because it started in tennis. We learned so much about tennis, but we learned nothing about anything else. So it really started as a passion project because I just had no clue the scope of what I was getting into. But now it's been running. So our program officially launched a year and a half ago, uh, a year after the pilot program, COVID delayed that. And yeah, so we've got our community tennis program, our STEM program, tuition assistance, meal supplement. We now just started legal training with our partner that w- that is the legal aid NGO. And I'm super excited. The kids have only been playing for a year now, are able to play points. They're playing tournaments. For them, I see the sky's the limit because I've gone through the whole pathway. And that's what I want to bring to them. But um, at the end of the day, just trying to itch the ceiling higher and higher for them, not having the goal of they must be professional tennis players, but trying to provide as much access to be the best that they can be within all the components that we offer. And it's been incredibly heartwarming. I came back last week actually from Uganda. And one thing that I didn't realize for me and for many of us that live in first world countries, tennis is an outlet. It's an a form of play, but it's not everything to us. There's some, there's other opportunities, but for these kids, they really don't have access to any, anything else. Even schools, some of them struggle to, to access. And they're in a country where being, being poor is looked very badly on and people mistreat them and, and to see them really thriving through tennis. And that's what I like. I don't think no matter where you come from or what status you're born in, everyone has potential. And to see that they're really internalizing like the self-confidence and the self-identity of like, I'm a tennis player and there's a community that supports me is something that I never expected because I didn't grow up like that. Like tennis wasn't that much to me, although it was a lot. It was my job and stuff like that. But to see them really taking on the identity and, and the positivity of all of the traits that tennis has given to them and plus that community and the support and knowing that there's a safe place for them. That's something that I didn't actually foresee because I didn't really know and I'm learning as I go along, but it's been incredibly heartwarming and yeah, would hope one day that, yeah, they can go to Wimbledon and, or they can go to the, the UK to play for a university there or the States or even within Uganda, they'll be the first in their family to go to university or to go to high school. So just little by little, just providing as much opportunity as we can, not saying, okay, we expect anything specific to happen, but I know that they'll do well. Yeah. And I think one thing you talked about the opportunity there, which I just think uh, is amazing as well, is that not obviously a lot, anyone even in first world countries is, has, a, has a small chance of making it professionally in, in tennis, but the amazing opportunities that so many of these kids are having is the opportunity to actually develop a skill because the problem is that with so when when you've got to just meet the basic needs you haven't got the time or the money to spend on advancing yourself in anything let alone in a sport so i think that amazing opportunity to be, to build on a skill is something that is sometimes overlooked i think and i think it's amazing that's what serving hope is helping with but also that whether it's going on to be a tennis coach which is a, an amazing career for a lot of people around the world. So that's an opportunity given to them, but also just, yeah, just the building blocks of learning how to develop a skill and improve upon something and, and stick out something is huge as well. It's really amazing. And what's, what is next for Serving Up Hope and where, what are your plans for the rest of the year and, and where would you like to see things going from now? So 
the sky's the limit. It's <laughs> a long term. We actually just purchased land. So Uganda has about 20 courts in total and they're all privately owned. They cost about $10 at the cheapest, $10 an hour. So let's say seven pounds an hour, which I guess is actually cheap in the UK. Mm -hmm. But again, when we're talking about families who are feeding eight people with 30 pounds a month, it becomes completely unaffordable for our kids to play. We've just purchased land and are now, you know, fundraising to try to construct courts so they can have more access to the sport. And our programs, we've actually looked back and we've expanded them quite a bit since we do have our meals supplement, we've got tuition, STEM education and legal training, and then we have our tennis. So I think our programs will stay consistent and just in terms of our offerings, but maybe hopefully provide more access within them. So our main goals this, this year is to build two courts in Uganda. We also have uh, domestic programs in the States, but we partner with uh, community organizations. So we have a program in LA and also Seattle that we're partnered with the YMCA. And so I would love to be able to expand to two more locations this year in the US. Who knows, we might be in the UK, around the world. As tennis players, we're global. And so I don't have Although I'm proud of being an American, I don't have a distinct affinity to that, that we must only serve the U.S. Or for me, if there's a need, there's a need and trying to just assist in any way that I can wherever that is around the world. Yeah, those are our goals for this year. And then long-term, have our tennis facility completed. This year, I also want to take two of our coaches to South Africa. I'm going to take two of our coaches to South Africa to see what the level is like there. All of our coaches and staff are PTR certified in Uganda. So we hopefully, we've put out a proposal to PTR Foundation to do an in-person workshop so all of our coaches can get level two certified and also try to get up to 20 people in Uganda certified as level one coaches. There's only also about five to 10 certified coaches in all of Uganda. So the more that we can just provide access to the sport in general, um, education, access resources, it'll make a huge difference in a place like Uganda. There's just really little to no infrastructure. Yeah. Listen to this podcast, how can they get involved? Um, where can they find Serving Up Hope? In, in what ways can they get involved? So first, I would encourage or love it if you guys were interested to follow us on social media. So a lot of our, we, po we publish recent photos and videos. We just had a community tennis uh, tournament last weekend. So a couple of days ago, and we posted the finals there and the kids were really excited. So you'll get an idea of kind of what we're doing, what our programs are. And you can also check out our website, servinguphope.org. And then of course, if you were interested in donating any funds, however little or however much, uh, do help a lot. This year, again, we're trying to fundraise for um, the construction of tennis courts. A lot of our funds will go there. Some of them, of course, to our operating costs. And again, none of our not, so we do have a staff on ground in Uganda. They're the only ones that get paid like a part-time stipend, but none of the rest of us, all of our board and all of our volunteers, none of us get paid. And I'll keep it that way until if and when we ever start getting more revenue in. For me, actually, you know what? I, I want to constantly keep it going to the program. So as long as we can do that, that's where it'll go. So for anyone who's donating, the money will go directly to the ground. Vanya, thank you so much. This has been really amazing. I really appreciate having me on the podcast. Um, 
it's amazing to to get even for me i've obviously met you before but uh, to get that insight into your journey for me is really insightful for our listeners i'm sure as well and just amazing what you and the rest of the serving up hope team are doing thanks for having me 